Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Joining us today is Mitchell P. Fink, MD, FCCM, Vice Chair of the Department of Surgery at the David Geffen School of Medicine in UCLA, and co-director of the Multidisciplinary Program for Critical Care Medicine at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. He also serves as professor in residence at the Department of Surgery and the Department of Anesthesiology at UCLA. Dr. Fink is with us to discuss his well-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as to discuss his plenary lecture titled, Tough Problem, New Therapies for Sepsis or Shock, which he presented during the Critical Care Congress. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Fink. I want to congratulate you again um, for this uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. I think it's well-deserved. And uh, I remember being, um, when I first uh, coming to Congress as a fellow, I remember very clearly hearing you talk and really being excited about uh, the world of critical care basic science, uh, clinical research. Uh, I remember very clearly at that time being quite impressed. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so it's really, it really is a, an, an absolute privilege for me to, to, to sit and talk with you. I was hoping you could uh, tell uh, the audience uh, a little bit about your early interest in critical care. Uh, what drew your attention? I know you have mentored many, uh, and I was wondering who your early mentors uh, were? So I think uh, my interest in critical care, I have to tell two stories. Started in medical school and then uh, kind of was uh, solidified when I was an intern in surgery. So in medical school I was pretty certain, I had done some immunology research before medical school um, it's a long story, and I won't bore either you or the podcast audience with that. But I'd done some immunology research um, before going to medical school, and my plan in medical school was uh, to um, get training in internal medicine and um, become some kind of immunologist, maybe a rheumatologist or... Mm maybe an infectious disease doctor, but I, it was clearly in the internal medicine space. Um, and I did. I went to medical school at Washington University in St. Louis, and I had my surgical rotation during my junior year was at St. Louis County Hospital, which is just what it sounds like. And general surgery service there was run by the chief resident or one of the chief residents in surgery. There was kind of, uh, back in those days, minimal to none supervision by attending surgeons. This was a resident-run service. And uh, my surgical team, which consisted of the chief resident and probably a junior resident and an intern and me, um, was asked to see a patient in the medical intensive care unit at St. Louis County Hospital that had been admitted a couple days earlier with uh, coma and hyperglycemia. And the internal medicine service 
uh, also resident run in the MICU, had uh, been spending the last 48 hours trying to get this guy to wake up and to get his blood sugar under control. Um, and they had noticed, I guess, on morning rounds that the patient's uh, abdominal exam was not normal. Um, and they asked for a general surgery consult, and so the intern and I uh, went and examined the patient, and the intern said, this guy's got a surgical abdomen. Um, and he called up the chief resident who came over and agreed and said, we can't take this guy to the OR with a blood sugar of 400. Hmm. Um, we'll take him onto our service, tune him up, and we'll get him to the operating room this afternoon. And so um, the patient was transferred from the MICU to the SICU. Um, the IV that had been running at 50 cc's an hour or something, I, this is a long time ago, sure. I don't remember the details, but I remember we gave a lot of volume and we started an insulin drip, which back in those days was kind of a novel thing to mm. do. The guy had perforated diverticulitis, he got a, a sigmoid colectomy, he got a colostomy, he woke up, he went home, and I thought this was really cool. cool. Most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> yes. Most amazing thing in the world, that it was like a fixable problem, yeah. and um, it required some doctoring, it required some surgery, and that was it. I decided I'm going to be a surgeon. And... The notion of being a surgeon and the notion of the intensive care unit in my mind at that point were one and the same because that sort of pivotal experience was all around the ICU. Then when I was a uh, intern at the National Naval Medical Center, a bunch of my surgical attendings were people who became very well known in surgery afterwards because they were Barry Plan guys. Um, so Courtney Townsend, who's the chair of surgery at uh, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, was one of my attendings. Dennis King, who became a very famous pediatric surgeon, was another one of my attendings. So I was learning surgery from some pretty smart guys. Um, George Rodman, who was active in this society a long time ago. Um, was another one of my attendings. And Don Pro, who's the chief of anesthesiology, at uh, chair of anesthesiology at UTMB in Galveston now, was a chief resident in anesthesia then. And he also was very active in this society and kind of his academic career was built around critical care medicine. And when I was an intern, maybe I'd been uh, training for a couple of months, a patient who'd had some kind of big general surgery operation, I don't remember what, uh, and was on the ward, he was about three days out, developed a high fever, and his blood pressure dropped. The nurses called me to come see him, and his blood pressure was like 70, and, and the patient was like 70. And the way the hospital was set up, the ward was on the same floor as the ICU um, and this is again a long time ago um, and I physically wheeled the patient on a gurney from the ward into the intensive care unit and Don Pro was um, the anesthesia resident in the ICU at the time 
and he helped me or did he did it I can't remember even now but we floated a Swan Gans catheter into this 70 year old guy and his cardiac output was like 10 or 12 liters a minute and his blood pressure was like 70 I mean he had no peripheral vasomotor tone and he had a cardiac output as at a, as like you know a marathon runner and yeah, we checked it a bunch of times. We were both kind <laughs> can't of... Be possible, this can't right? be possible. And it turned out, I mean, that the guy had actually had um, um, sepsis from an infected IV, peripheral IV. He had serratia marcescens growing in, the, in his vein around his IV catheter. He got all better very quickly once the IV was taken out and he was given a dose of genomycin or something. But that, uh, that hemodynamic profile was just amazing to me. And I kind of said to myself at that point, I'm going to try to figure this out. How does that happen? So the first part of my research career after I got done with training was all about um, the vasoplegia of, of, of septic shock. I tried to figure that out. About what year is this? So that w I was a surgery resident from 19, uh, I guess, 79 to 1984, something okay. like that. Nobody had a clue about this stuff. The Swan-Gans catheter was pretty new. Yeah. And, and who, was, uh, who was managing the ICU at the time? Dr. Rosenthal, who's for many years ran the ICU at Stanford after leaving the Navy. Um, Tom Rainey, towards the end of my training, Bart Chernow. Uh, so these are all sort of household words in yeah. critical care medicine. So that Navy ICU was a, was a sort of, um, a lot of, Gary Saloga was there, a lot of people who had good careers in critical care medicine. Don Pro, all kind of worked in that ICU. You know, and that was not surprising. That, it, it, that was the tail end of the Vietnam War. We got a lot of sick people uh, medevaced from um, the Army hospitals in Germany and came back to the United States and they were infected. And so we, we learned how to take care of sick people there. And uh, so after your training, you begun a, a research career? or uh, So then I... Um, I spent a year on, a, on an aircraft carrier right after my training mm -hmm. um, as the ship surgeon. And then I um, had two more years of time owed to the Navy and I um, spent those two years at the Naval Medical Research Institute. And another well-known surgical investigator at the time, Ray Fletcher, was running that laboratory and he was there for the first six months or so that I was there, and then he got out of the Navy and and can't remember where he went. But um, remarkably, I was like six months out of you know basically my training after, except for the hiatus on the aircraft carrier, and they put me in charge of this laboratory, and I had like for all practical purposes an unlimited budget. So I said, we're going to study sepsis and septic shock. And I'm going to try to figure out how to do it. Um, and so I read a bunch of papers. Dick Simmons, who was another famous surgeon, 
and at the time was at the University of Minnesota, had written a bunch of papers about um, developing sepsis in rats. Um, he was mostly interested in the infectious disease aspects of peritonitis, and he had a peritonitis model on rats that involved creating a fibrin clot and infecting the clot with viable bacteria like E. coli bacteria. And what the Simmons group did in those really nice series of papers was looked at the clearance of the bacteria and how the bacteria got from the peritoneal cavity into the bloodstream and kind of worked out that whole lymphatic clearance mechanism. Ooh. I mean, they did really nice work. Anyway, I took that idea of using an infected clot and just scaled it up and I did it in dogs and made these infected clots that were about the size of an orange and put it into the peritoneal cavity of dogs. And I had the dogs instrumented so that I could measure cardiac output and blood pressure. And sure enough, the um, heart rate and blood pressure, uh, heart rate went up, blood pressure went down, cardiac output went up 24 hours after infecting these animals. So I had a model of the, what I had observed in this old guy some six or seven years earlier of, of hyperdynamic septic shock. And I gave a presentation, um, I can't remember how this came about, but I, I had some data and I, I presented the data across the street from the Navy Hospital at the NIH in front of Joe Perillo and, and Chuck Natanson and Bob Danner and all those NIH guys, Henry Mazur, that cluster of people. And Perillo really liked the story. Um, and Natanson was looking for a research project. And in particular, Perillo and Natanson were looking for a way to study myocardial depression in a clinically relevant sepsis model. And it looked like I had the only clinically relevant sepsis model. So we set up a collaboration and Chuck was an amazing guy. And we instrumented all these dogs and we um, made them septic and then we would take them to a gamma camera and do gated radionuclide blood pool scans. That's the only way you could measure ejection fraction in those days, there wasn't any ultrasound, there wasn't any of And I mean, it was a major undertaking, and Chuck was just an animal. I mean, he, he was unrelenting in getting this done. And sure enough, these, even though these dogs had high cardiac output, their ejection fractions dropped, they had reversible myocardial depression, just like Perello had observed in human patients. So that was really this, I mean, those guys taught me a lot. They taught me how to be a, a careful scientist and, and how to think about things in a very rigorous way. We got a very high profile paper out of that and um, that sort of launched my research career. It sounds as though um, you were both in the right places at the right time with the right people with a lot of... Uh prior experience and knowledge uh, and just a lot of um, uh, tenacity. Yeah, so I had pretty much tenacity, but more than that, I had curiosity. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, I've known a lot of people who are more, more tenacious uh -huh. than I am. I've certainly known lots of people who are smarter than I am. 
but I was probably more curious than lots of people. Yeah. I really kind of wanted to figure out stuff. And um, so, yeah, if I was giving advice to people, I mean, it's a really hard time to be a scientist these days because the funding stream is so terrible. But the, the, the first requirement, I think, is to be curious, to, to ask a lot of questions and kind of wonder how things work. Um, and it was later on that I kind of, I was not only just curious, I really wanted to, to come up with things that would make patients better to improve care. But early on, it was not that altruistic. It was just plain curiosity. Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a really great point, actually, the more I think about it. The, some academic facilities you know, certainly push the research agenda, and people are doing research for the purpose of doing research rather than for the purpose of pure curiosity or wanting to find, figure something out. And yeah. That, it sounds like that both you and Dr. Perillo noticed things at the bedside and wanted to figure out what is going on here. Yeah, exactly. And take it right. to the lab. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah we really did. And, and when you think about it, what we were, the things we were trying to figure out back then were, a, were, you know, pretty interesting things. You know, the fact that sepsis is, induces this profound cardiomyopathy that's reversible, like in 10 days, um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And the fact that sepsis can cause cardiac output to go up, despite the fact that the cardiac function is impaired because the there's no afterload anymore that's pretty remarkable too i mean it really i mean it's it's really kind of striking physiology absolutely and that was quite novel at the time back back then it was really novel yeah. were you active on the clinical side during this time or well, during those two years that I was at the Naval Medical Research Institute, no, I wasn't doing clinical surgery at all. And, in fact, my plan after um, finishing my two years of Navy time at what was called NAMRI, NMRI, Navy Medical Research Institute, was to continue my training in surgery um, and, and become a heart surgeon. And I'd been accepted by a really good program. There was an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine that the University of Massachusetts Medical Center was recruiting for a director of research. And I don't know why, but I sent in my CV and responded to that ad, even though I'd been accepted <laughs> somewhere else to be do a cardiac surgical residency. The chairman of surgery up there was a guy named Brownie Wheeler called me up and he said we really weren't recruiting for somebody who was a doctor we were recruiting for somebody who was a PhD scientist but you have pretty interesting credentials would you like to join the faculty anyway not in this position um, as the director of the surgical intensive care unit and I said well no um, I've already been accepted into a heart surgery residency and I kind of want to be a heart surgeon. And he said, listen, what your role in life is, is to be an intensivist, an ICU director. Uh, he didn't use the word intensivist, I'm sure, because that didn't exist back right. then. And he said, listen, I'll make you this deal. 
um, we have a heart surgery residency here too. And if after a year of being on the faculty, running the ICU and being a, a surgeon, you uh, don't want to do that anymore and you want to be a heart surgeon, I'll guarantee you a spot in our, our cardiac surgical residency. That sounded pretty good to me. Pretty good offer. Um, so I called up the very famous guy who was the chair of cardiac surgery at the place I'd been in. And I said, I'm not coming. He was upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I went to UMass and I, yeah, I was very active clinically. I ran the surgical intensive care unit. I was a general surgeon. I did a lot of gallbladder operations and appendectomies and bowel resections and a little bit of vascular surgery. Back then, um, tips didn't exist and um, when somebody came in with variceal bleeding, they needed a big vascular operation and I kind of became the go-to guy to do those mesocable shunts and porticable shunts. So yeah, I did a lot of clinical surgery. I did a lot of attending in the ICU. But I, I wrote a, what was called a first award back then, a way to get young investigators started at the NIH, and it got funded. After that grant, I, I wrote a R01 application, and that got funded. So I started running a lab, yeah, being a surgeon and being an intensivist. And then at different points in my career, I was mostly a surgeon, or I was mostly an intensivist. And then when I came to Pittsburgh, I tried to do four things. Uh, be a surgeon, be an intensivist, be a scientist, and be an administrator running a big department. There just wasn't enough hours in the week to do all of that. And at least one, probably two of those things had to go. And so what happened was, after being up all night operating on somebody with bad pancreatic trauma, I uh, walked out of the operating room and said, that's it. That's, that's the last one. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Um, so that was the last time I operated. I think that was in like 2003 or 2004. And then I, and I also didn't do a lot of clinical work at, in Pittsburgh in the ICUs. I would attend one day a week in, in, at the VA. And that just, I mean, I was not a very good intensivist by the time I left Pittsburgh. You were chair of critical care. Yeah, Pittsburgh. we set up a separate department yeah. there, a completely separate department. So that, that department evolved under your yeah. direction? Yeah. And, you know, kind of all the things that I've done over the years, that was the kind of the, the one thing that will really have a lasting effect on the field, I yeah. think. Um, that's the right model. Um, it really is. It, it's, it's hard to get everyone on board. The political hurdles are enormous. Cultural hurdles are, are large. But it's the only way you have enough manpower to provide an institution with fully integrated critical care services. And it makes sense programmatically because once patients are really sick, they don't care about how they got there. They're, they're all about the same, you know, they're really sick. And a, a well-trained internal medicine doc, a well-trained anesthesiologist, a well-trained surgeon, well-trained neurologist, well-trained ER doc, they can all take care of those patients. Um, 
And so I think that's the right model. How, how do you get there? Um, how do you, did you overcome those hurdles? I imagine, I mean, in the present day, it's, uh, I know it's challenging for our institution. We're, we, we don't have a Department of Critical Care. And I, I would imagine uh, that was 10, 15 years ago? It was about 12 years ago. 12 yeah. years ago? Yeah. I imagine the climate wasn't that much different and perhaps even more, a little bit more challenging. Well, yet the answer is yes and no. So it certainly was 12 years earlier in, in the evolution of our specialty. But Pittsburgh was a pretty darn convivial environment for creating that. You know, the legacy of critical care there goes back a long ways. Probably the cardiac surgical unit at the University of Pittsburgh is one of the earliest intensive care units in the country. And Peter Saffer and Aki Grenvik, you know, are sort of the fathers of this field. So the environment was good. Um, during the Starzl era um, in Pittsburgh, you know, the, the, uh, the peak number of liver transplants was probably over 700 a year. And that generates a lot of sick people, people needing a liver transplant and people having a liver transplant, particularly in an era when the operation was not as mature an operation as it is now. Um, and so they, the people in Pittsburgh were very used to having intensivists take care of their patients. The notion of, of putting all the intensivists under this, the same roof of a department was novel. But when it was explained to people, uh, the dean and the, and the CEO of the hospital and the chairs of the other departments, they kind of got it. And then I had some help from a couple of key people. Uh, Richard Simmons, the guy I was talking about earlier, uh, at that point was the chief medical officer for the UPMC system. Dr. Simmons previously had been the chair of surgery there for a number of years and had built, you know, arguably one of the best departments of surgery in the country. And he was a very powerful and very beloved figure in the institution. And he had worked with Frank Serra at the uh, University of Minnesota. He was a big-time believer in critical care medicine. And so he pushed hard to make it happen. The CEO of the healthcare system is a guy named Jeffrey Romoff, who is a very strong executive, not a doctor, but a forward thinker. And he at one point said to me, you know, I have a department of neurology, that's about 1% of the budget of this place. I have a department of dermatology, that's about half a percent of the budget of this place but I don't have a department of critical care medicine and that's 40% of the budget of this place. You know, that doesn't make any sense at all. Hmm. So, um, of course, uh, this has got to happen. And the dean, the, the dean's main agenda was, are you going to be able to, you know, uh, create a research engine? Um, and I assured him that critical care was a hot area of research and that we could build a research agenda that would get funded. So they all bought in. They pushed hard on the people who were not enthusiastic. <laughs> and so it happened. And, and then, you know, there were some doubters, but um, 
you know, the, the proof is in the pudding and, and we created a clinical service second to none and we created a, a research program that was, you know, uh, pulling in 15 or 16 million dollars a year in, in extramural support, publishing papers in high profile journals. So um, I think everyone was pretty happy. And, uh, you know, the, the testament to all that is that when I left um, and Derek Angus took over, it, it, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about the department. And when Derek leaves, there'll be another chair. And, and I mean, it's, it's a living thing. It's a, it's a done deal there. It's not going away. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing legacy for you. Yeah, I re- that, that, of all the things... I, I've cured a lot of mice, um, <laughs> and in the final analysis, that's not going to ma- amount to much. But I have created a department that provides great clinical care and, and trains lots of intensivists, and, and so I'm really proud of that. It sounds like of all your accomplishments, that's the, yeah. the most special for you. Yeah, definitely. Wondering, this has been, as I said before, I, mean, I think I could say. I shouldn't even say talk, I, I could sit and listen to you forever. Perhaps we can shift gears and uh, get back to research in critical care, research in sepsis. Uh, as, as you've pointed out, we've had, uh, I, I would say, a remarkable lack of success uh, over, over the, the, the many years. What, needs to, what things need to change in terms of, um, I suppose, funding, in terms of research design, uh, where, where do we need to be in the future? First, even though we've had a lack of success in coming up with specific medicines for um, the treatment of septic patients or shock patients or ARDS patients, overall we're, we, we're clearly doing better. If you look at a plot of the placebo group mortality rate, for the last dozen or so big multicentric trials for sepsis and septic shock, the placebo group mortality rate keeps going down. It's going down a lot. I think when I was first an attending in critical care in the Navy or at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and we'd see patients after multi-trauma with multi-organ system dysfunction, um, the syndrome back then was characterized always by ARDS and uh, almost always by cholestatic jaundice. And to see bilirubins in the 20s and 30s was not uncommon. So cholestatic jaundice in patients with sepsis or trauma these days, pretty darn rare. I can't remember the last time I saw that. ARDS is getting to be pretty rare, um, both based on personal experience and based on recently published data. It would be hard to do an ARDS trial right now, I think, because the number of cases is so low. So I think we have actually made huge strides. We haven't come up with a medicine yet, but we've learned a lot. Um, We don't drown our patients anymore, and we set up the ventilator better. We treat infection more aggressively, we prevent infection more aggressively, uh, we don't uh, poison people with TPN, uh, we do lots of things uh, a lot better than we right. used to. 
And all of that translates into huge improvements in outcome. What we haven't done is taken all of the huge strides in our understanding of immunology and inflammation and translated that into cures for inflammatory conditions like sepsis and, and ARDS. We have translated it into good therapies for Crohn's disease and, and rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, but not into good medicines for sepsis and ARDS. So um, we need to do that. As I indicated earlier, I think one of the things that we need to do in order to do that is get away from mouse models because they're leading us astray. We need to um, adopt as often as possible what um, some other people have called the endocrine model of disease. And I'll come back to that in a second. And uh, we may have to change uh, and convince the regulatory agencies to allow us to change uh, the markers, the bars that have to be climbed over to count things as successful. So in terms of the endocrine model of disease, I think this is a term that John Marshall has coined, if I'm not mistaken. But the idea is that in, in that model of disease, you measure something, um, and a good example would be circulating thyroxin levels. Um, and if they're too high, somebody's thyrotoxic, you give them a medicine like methimazole and you measure the thing again and if the, the level of thyroxin hasn't dropped yet, you give more methimazole and you keep measuring the thyroxin level until it normalizes and then you know you've given enough of the stuff and you cure the disease. The thyrotoxicosis goes away. If the st stuff is too low, you give that stuff back and you measure it and you keep giving it back until you normalize the level and the disease goes away. Um, that works really well. We've cured lots of diseases using that model. It would be nice to apply that to ICU kind of illnesses. So it would be nice to have a marker for the inflammatory response that's an important marker in, say, sepsis. And to give a medicine that makes that mediator go, go down and keep titrating the medicine until the mediator levels normalize. And then you'd know you've given enough and presumably things would get better. So that's one point. Another point is that all of these trials have used mortality at a, at a landmark time point as the registration endpoint. And I completely understand why the FDA has required that. Uh, we have been making progress in the care of critically ill patients um, by not using that as, a as an endpoint. So we use pressors differently than we used to. We use the ventilator differently than we used to. We um, use nutrition differently than we used to. We use fluids differently than we used to. And in many cases, the endpoints that have resulted in these incremental changes, um, or the endpoints that got the drug into practice, was not a survival endpoint. 
So we use vasopressin routinely now in the ICU. I'm sure you do. And that's a drug that's not even approved, as far as I know, for the treatment of hypotension. It was a drug that was approved for the treatment of a deficiency of antidiuretic hormone. Um, but it is a good vasopressor, and we titrate it to blood pressure, not to survival. Um, so it may be that we need to think about approving drugs, for example, improving responsiveness to pressors, or reversing sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy, or preventing sepsis-induced renal failure. Um, rather than improving mortality. Maybe we should be biting off smaller pieces of, of, of pie in order to, to kind of gradually nibble away at this thing. I don't know. The, the FDA may not allow us to do that because they've taken the view that all drugs have both beneficial and side effects and the only, way, the only integrated endpoint is mortality. That may be too narrow a view. I think one of the most promising approaches right now may be to think about repurposing old drugs. So um, at this meeting, John Kellum from the University of Pittsburgh has, a, has an, a poster up based on an animal model, based on a rat model of sepsis, and that may not be worth much, but um, showing that a single dose of cyclosporin uh, can prevent acute renal failure in septic rats. And there's some good reasons to think that that might be right. The track record of safety with cyclosporin is really long. Um, a single dose of cyclosporin is not going to hurt anybody. That's a clinical trial that could be started tomorrow. It's an old drug. It's using an old drug for a new purpose. I, I really like that idea. There's a bunch of data out in the last couple years uh, showing that an enzyme... Um, matrix metalloproteinase 8, MMP8, is probably a mediator of sepsis, at least in animals. MMP8 levels are high in patients with severe sepsis relative to normal people, and they're much higher in people who go on to die than they are in people who go on to survive. That's human data. There are genetic data that show that people who have a tendency to make MMP8 more than people who don't have a much higher likelihood of dying of sepsis. Mm. So the signal uh, that MMP8 is important is reasonably strong. And uh, as I wrote in an editorial in Critical Care Medicine a couple of years ago, there's a drug that's been available for 30 years that's a really good MMP8 inhibitor. That's doxycycline. It's already approved um, by the FDA for the treatment of an inflammatory condition, periodontal disease. The levels of uh, drug levels of doxycycline that are required to inhibit the enzyme are much lower than the levels that are required to act as an antibiotic. Doxycycline, like all drugs, has side effects, but the safety profile of doxycycline has been known for a long time. It's available in the United States and, the, and Western Europe as a, a, in an intravenous formulation. It's, it's an old drug that could be repurposed for a new indication, and it's not going to hurt anybody, or it's not going to hurt very many people. It's a pretty safe drug. Um, so that um, is a pretty appealing approach. So there are 
there's a couple of drugs just mentioned uh, tetracycline and 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 cyclosporin that might be repurposed so I really like that approach um, it's not an approach that uh, pharmaceutical companies like much sure. but it's an approach that the NIH ought to support um, it's an approach that is amenable for investigator sponsored pilot studies in single centers um, because you can get that, those kind of studies through an IRB pretty easily. So I kind of think that's maybe where we should be heading. Some, there are some great ideas there for any listeners who are looking for a small pilot to begin. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been great. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.